0: Twenty one CL radio. You're listening to the Run Your Life Podcast with host Andy Vasic.
1: Hi everyone, welcome to the Run Your Life podcast. I really do appreciate you taking the time to listen to any episode that you can. As I have said so many times in the past, my podcast is really a genuine passion project of mine that inspires me to learn as much as I can from the amazing guests that I have on my show. I've been so fortunate to have some really great people on the show who always open up To share their authentic life experiences, what they have learned about themselves, and how they hold true and steady to the life path that they have devoted themselves to. In each episode, I set out to better understand the guiding principles that drive my guests forward in their personal and professional lives. Some of the themes that I like to explore in each episode relate to how they face each day with the same intensity in order to make the lasting difference that they want to make, how they cope with adversity and hardship, what their fundamental framework is that they operate from in order to be their best, how they continue to find purpose and meaning in their life, and finally, what their hopes and dreams are. These are just some of the areas that I like to explore in each episode in order to learn from my guests and to be able to deconstruct what success means to them in their chosen fields. In today's episode, I sat down with Hamish Brewer, Anybody who has seen Hamish in action can immediately feel his presence, his passion, his zest for life and learning, and his desire to make a genuine difference in the lives of the teachers and students he serves. Hamish is the principal of Fred Lynn Middle School in Woodbridge, Virginia. And one of the very first things you can notice about genuine difference makers in this world is their ability to clearly articulate their purpose in life. Without question, Hamish knows and understands that his purpose in life is to serve others and to bring out the very best in them. Although every decision he makes in his role as an educational leader is about students, Hamish has a very strong commitment to supporting teachers on their autonomous journeys of personal and professional development. Having grown up in New Zealand, Hamish felt from an early age that he was meant to use his talents in a way to change the world. It took him some time to figure out what those talents were and how he could use them to make an impact, but he quickly realized it was going to be through teaching, and educational leadership. Hamish is all about creating a deep sense of belonging in the schools that he leads and continually builds a very strong community base that all stakeholders feel a part of. In this episode, we dive into how Hamish was able to overcome the obstacles he experienced as a young person and how he dealt with a dysfunctional family environment. He openly discusses what his hopes and dreams were when he was young and how he was destined to leave New Zealand in order to travel the world and learn about different people and cultures. Hamish has a deep sense of gratitude for these experiences. It was this life of travel that ultimately led Hamish to America and to the current path he is on in the field of education. Hamish pours his heart and soul into the work that he does and feels strongly that serving others is a noble gift that can help to change the world one person at a time. Through the Dave Burgess Publishing Company, Hamish released his first book a couple of months ago, which is entitled Relentless. This book has taken the world of education by storm and is a very honest and open narrative about Hamish's life and an unpacking of the educational philosophy that guides the amazing work that he is doing with the students and the teachers that he is responsible for leading. Although much has been written about Hamish being the skateboarding tattooed principal, we do not discuss his tattoos or his skateboarding at all in this episode. Instead, we dig deeply into who Hamish is as a person and what continues to drive him forward in his life in order to create his own dent in the universe. I want to thank Hamish for his time and energy. He's a gem of a person, and I'm so happy that our paths crossed. Without further ado, my episode with the inspiring Hamish Brewer. Hamish uh, thanks so much for being on the show you know we we connected last year and uh, we tried to work out a time and I know you're super busy and then we were doing some traveling my family and I um, and so it didn't work out last year but I'm glad this this opportunity just kind of came up and, and we're running with it so really thanks for taking the time to be on my podcast.
0: Yeah, I'm super excited. I, uh, I love following your work and we've been following each other for a while. Like you said, you know, we've tried to figure out how to uh, make this happen a few times and just with schedules and everything else. Uh, you know, I, I love the fact that we just kind of like tied this thing down and, and let's make it happen. So super excited to um, speak to your audience and share and grow together and have a great organic conversation.
1: Yeah, and in preparation for this podcast, I had shown uh, my boys some of your videos and some of the work you're doing, and uh, they're 13 and 15 years old, and they were incredibly moved by your style, by your passion, and to capture the interest of, you know, my boys, 13 and 15 years old, to capture their interest the way you did through those videos, speaks volumes about the work that you're doing. So in advance to this conversation, I want to Thank you for your endless work at making our profession what it is.
0: Thank you. I appreciate it.
1: Yeah. So I thought a great place to start would be just to set the context. We're going to try to cover a lot of different areas, but to set the context, if you could talk a bit about early life, you grew up in New Zealand, and I guess some of the obstacles that you faced in in growing up, which would eventually inspire your leadership style. So could you talk about that?
0: Yeah, yeah. 100% yeah I really think that uh a lot of who I am today is because of how I grew up and some of the trials and tribulations that I overcame during that time um you know growing up uh, in New Zealand is a is a wonderful place definitely to grow up you know you grow up loving sports the outdoors um and I think for me for instance sports was a savior for me you know I went to an all-boys school at high school and uh one of the things I loved about that was getting to play rugby together with your friends and uh, you take your lunch, you have a great time, and uh, you, you're really connected that way. But, you know, growing up in New Zealand, you're never too far from the water. Um, there's always some sort of water sport going on, some sort of hiking, some sort of outdoor. Um, and, and, you know, the the older I get, the, the more I realize how much I actually took that for granted growing up and you realize how, how fortunate you were. But um, growing up, you know, I... Uh, I when i was really young you know everything was quite normal felt quite normal right up until i got old enough to be much more aware of kind of what was happening around me um, um as we got into our teens i have uh two other brothers and as we got into our teens you know stuff with the family really started to become uh, much more dysfunctional uh, much, much more challenging uh, my parents separated um and I was left with my father. My father took good care of us, uh, as much as he struggled with his own challenges himself. And you know, we grew up around a lot of uh, a lot of stuff that uh, you know what I thought was normal turns out wasn't normal when you grow up around a lot of heartache and some uh, you know alcohol abuse and and and, and uh, drugs and some things like that. Um, you start you grow up around those things, and you get to see another side of life that's a little bit different. Um, uh, but it 's also taught me a lot about life um, taught me a lot about where I am um, and i 'm really grateful for the the challenges that I overcame you know and and uh, I would uh hang a mirror in my bedroom as a high schooler and i 'd have pictures around it of swimming pools that I cut out from magazines and I would dream of. Dream of a new, you know, new life, new hope. Um, and I'd keep a map on my wall, and I would put pins in the map of where I'd want to travel one day, you know, and um, think of opportunities that would take me away from how I was growing up or, or the anxiety I was facing around that, you know. And and you don't realize until later on the effects a lot of that that stuff have on you. Um,
1: but can, can I ask you? Uh, sorry, sorry to interrupt. Because yeah. there's you're bringing up so so many questions that I have to dig deeper into that. And, and there's a couple things that immediately rise to the surface when I hear you talk about your early years, you know. And again, my background is, uh, came from a dysfunctional environment. I had a brother who committed suicide uh, from major depression uh, five years ago. Another brother died of drug abuse. And me too, in growing up, I always, despite the environment that I was in, sports was my saving grace. And that's what I I did my TED talk about. And, you know, there was always something within myself that was able to look at the positive in some way. And although it was extremely hard in some moments to do so, there was always this kind of eternal optimism at times. How can you describe that in yourself? Because a lot of people going through what you went through wouldn't have a map on their wall. They wouldn't have hopes. They wouldn't have these visions for themselves in the future because of their situation can be very futile. Can you just talk about what strengths did you possess at a young age that allowed you to be able to have that vision and ultimately leave New Zealand to follow your dreams?
0: Yeah, I think, I think a lot of it comes down to that um, I've always had this innate um, competitive nature to want to do something. Um, growing up, I fe- always felt like I was going to do something important. I wasn't quite sure what it was um, until I really got to teaching. Um, I, I knew that there was something for me. I wasn't quite sure what it was, and I kept going on that journey of self-discovery. Um, I'd always had leadership qualities, uh, from a young age, always was a captain of a sports team, always was somebody that gravitated to leadership responsibility. And I think a lot of those things along the way helped keep me on the right track, you know, and, and, and by playing sports and keeping busy and keeping, keeping involved and things like that, you know, you innately just begin to stay focused. And I would draw, I would draw inspiration from a variety of things, um, of hope, you know, other stories of hope, um, looking at other people uh, overcoming and accomplishing or um, and, and getting to where they needed to get to. You know, I wasn't quite sure what it was. I was very lost. Like, for instance, when it came to academics. Um, I struggled mightily with academics and actually failed my high school exams and had to repeat a year in high school and, 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 things like that. And, uh, it was really difficult to overcome that. And, and then finally something clicked as I, as I, as I got out of high school, a, a guidance counselor said to me, you know, you can't stay at school forever. Uh, how little did she really know in the end? But, um, yeah, yeah. I, uh. a lot of the time growing up, I was told I wasn't academic enough, not smart enough, uh, at kindergarten, uh, the teacher tried to say I was dumb, had a learning disability to my mother at at, at the time. And so I think I've just always been fighting and I was determined that the environment I was in was not going to be my outcome, you know, that I felt like I I could go on. I was trying to look for that thing, what it was going to be. And like I said, you know, I used to cut out um, newspaper cuttings from sports articles. Like uh, one of the ones I still have today is Auckland. I set to dominate, you know, I just had this mindset that through sports and through through my friends and and, and I was going to dominate, I was going to do well at something. And again, I just, you know, sometimes you just keep gravitating towards some of that Mm -hmm. leadership responsibility. You know, you can either sit and wallow or you can do something about it. And I think I've always kind of tended to be on that side of I'm going to live and die by my own sword. You know, I'm going to be the tip of the spear. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to allow somebody else to be the tip of the spear for me. And regardless of my failings academically, I just think as a person, I always, I always had that strength to overcome and be the tip of the spear. And, uh, I think that served me well.
1: Yeah. It sounds like obviously it did. And it gave you the internal strength to, to move forward in very empowering ways. And, you know, like you, like I said before, I had played American football and, and growing up in Canada you had tons of snow. Like I had footballs with me the whole like all year round. I would bring the snow shovel out and clear patches yeah. in the snow to be able to kick and throw the football and it was definitely my saving grace. And through that the, the leadership uh opportunities came naturally to me as well. I was team captain and then you move into Having, you know, coaching, you end up coaching and, and a lot of the guys that I played with in university, if they didn't turn pro, they became uh, cops, firemen or teachers, many of them. And it's well,
0: which, which is really interesting, because when I came to the US, I was a teacher and I became a fireman. So I volunteered five at the same
1: time. So it's this idea of service to others. And, and I think in describing your journey, there's a, there's a huge aspect of what you do and anybody watching your videos will see your, um, almost your servant leadership style, you know? Yeah. And I guess I want to move into this idea of, um, when did you know that you for certain wanted to become an educator?
0: yeah you know it was interesting in my uh, towards the end of high school I would try out a number of programs Uh, you know you'd go and be you'd go to a career polytechnic type thing and become a tried um, try a service try some sort of industry I tried tourism I was thought you know what I'm gonna go do tourism I can sit on the beach I can travel to yeah, exotic yeah. locations right up until I realized you sit behind a desk the whole time so I canceled that out yeah, yeah. and then uh, I tried building. And this guy in the middle of the summer took me on as a little bit of a trial thing. And he said, dig a ditch right here. And it was the middle of summer. There ain't no spade on the planet that was going to dig a ditch for this guy. (laughs) He came out, got really upset that I hadn't dug a ditch. I said, here's the shovel. You try it. (laughs) Boom. He couldn't dig the ditch. (laughs) Needless to say, I didn't become a builder. I didn't get paid that day. And uh, I, I think what you said earlier is a huge part of internally just the heartbeat of who I am. It's about service, it's about community, it's about helping others. And I've always drifted to that, you know, like I've always wanted to fight for the underdog. Like if kids were getting bullied at school as a high schooler, I went and stood up for the kid that was getting bullied. You know, I didn't choose sides. You know, I could have been in the popular group just because I was an athlete at the time, but you know that wasn't important to me. What was important to me was being a great person to all people, because I firmly believe that the greatest gift is the gift of giving, and the more you give, the more it comes back to you. And so, as I as I fell into teaching uh, at the career counselor, effects came through, and it had applications for teachers college. And I thought, you know what, I get to work outside, I get to work with kids, I get to do fun things, go on school camps. I'm not thinking about all the curriculum at this point. I'm just yeah, thinking yeah. of the hundred pros that they were to teaching. Yeah. And she said, well, maybe you're not quite <laughs> academic enough. And at this point, I'm sick of hearing that. I'm done. I yeah. am done with that. And I'm kind of at the point where I need to find something because I'm in trouble. I'm not going to be able to stay at school any longer. And so I said, I'm going to try it out. I applied for it. Um, somehow I got accepted. I joked that there must have been a shortage of male teachers that year. Mm-hmm. And uh, I went to Teachers College, which got me into Auckland University. It was a double degree program. And turns out I ended up failing one of my first classes at university. Guy took me aside. They straightened me out. And from that point on, I never, ever failed a class again. I became the first in my um, family to graduate college to get a master's and hopefully in about six months, finish a doctorate. And, uh, at the time when I did my student practicum, you know, you go on these short one day, two day, and then it gets longer to yeah, three yeah. to a week to three weeks. I did a practicum and I knew I was home Yeah. when I got around students. I knew I was home and, um, it was funny from a young time as a teacher that my my uh, practicum teachers that would look after me and give me guidance knew there was something special about me. But the same message kept coming through. This guy, man, he's out of control. We have to, like, <laughs> shape this diamond a little because yeah. uh, right from day one I was a risk taker and, and wanted to break the norms of education. It just, it, it, it was like, you know, how the gears on a cycle just click yeah and you just – That was it for me. I knew as soon as I got around kids, I was home. This is what I do.
1: And do you think there was a deep sense of empathy that you brought to that?
0: Yeah, yeah, so so you know what? I, I know my lane. Basically, my whole career, I've been in Title I, working with kids of poverty, uh, working with students from all around the world, whether it be in New Zealand or here in the U.S. I've had students from all around the world. When I was in New Zealand, I had a lot of students from Africa. Uh, when I was in the U.S. here, and right now, I have a lot of students from South America. And so I've always had this international mindset of working with kids in a global curriculum, a global thought process, and and I just I just uh, back to your question. I just knew that the way I grew up and why I chose title one is because I felt like I related to those kids. I understood their hardships. I understood what they went through. Look, there was a period in time where I slept in a garage just so I could be alone and out. We didn't have enough room. for so everybody, and on a rainy day, the water would sweep through the garage. You know what I mean? I had a rat infested, uh, sofa that I kept in there. And, uh, I just knew what it was like to struggle not to eat sometimes or when dad uh, – it was easier for dad to buy pizza because it was cheaper to get a $5 pizza than go to the grocery store or fighting and chlorine for whatever. And I just knew at that time – when I got around those kids, I understood them. I just – I understood the heartbeat. I understood the families. I understood – when you can – you, you know you can't serve someone you think you're better than right and so when you're in that situation you can look in the eyes of a parent or a student that's struggling that doesn't have anything and you can say i understand and you can connect with them on another level like that and and you can be the hope and you can be the example and be the model for them there's no great gift right there and i just it, for me it just it's always felt right
1: yeah and when i watched uh your videos and and i i did the the research to get ready for this um, it, it's so obvious that you are, um, deeply invested emotionally in what you do, not just for students, but teachers.
0: Yeah. And, I'm all in, yeah. I'm all in across the board. Look, um,
1: how, how do you, how, how do you feel? Is there a sense of, um, uh, vulnerability when, when you, when you are willing to put yourself out there emotionally, yeah. like you do? Yeah. It's scary. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's scary. You know, like. So a couple of points led me to this stage. I became a better leader when I realized it wasn't about me and I empowered my teachers and gave my teachers ownership. I became a better leader when I shared me. When I first started out as a leader, first started out as a teacher, I didn't necessarily share my why, who I was. But what I found, the more I opened up and it's scary to open up and be vulnerable and, and put put your life out on the street like that, you know, and like put it all out there it's scary. Um, you know, we've all felt judged, Mm -hmm. but I always say to people, don't judge me. You don't know me. Mm -hmm. You don't know what I'm about or what I'm doing, but I also have to share that. And so over time, um, sharing more and opening up about my, me more became, helped me become better connected to my teachers, Mm -hmm. my community, my, you know, parents and students. and but our greatest resource next to our students in our building is our teachers. And, you know, all too often as administrators or leaders, we get in the way of our teachers. You know, our job is to enhance, uplift, nourish and care for our teachers like there's no tomorrow. Like I have, we have this like all in gang mentality that we'll fight for each other. You know, like how far are we willing to go for each other and the kids? And when you create this environment, this mission, that you want to not just change the outcome of a child or a school, but you want to change the outcome of an entire community becomes a greater calling. And I think today people want to be a part of something special, be a some, part of something important. They feel connected. They feel ownership. They need those things. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's not rocket science. A lot of people are always asking me, you know, what's the secret sauce? There is no secret sauce, man. It's just straight up like all in for each other for kids and that whole mentality of what, are we, how far are we willing to go for each other? You know, what are we willing to stand for? What are we willing to put that spear, that stake in the ground that says we won't be moved?
1: Right. And, you know, one of the, the statistics that I present, uh, or that I share when I present right away, and I, I share it as a provocation really, uh, in the workshops that I do, um, is the world health organization has said, uh, By 2030, suicide is going to be the leading cause of death worldwide due to social isolation and um, people just not feeling as though they belong, the disconnect. And everything you're describing creates a huge sense of belonging, which whether people want to admit it or not, whether you're an introvert or an extrovert, everybody needs to feel that they belong.
0: Everybody needs to feel they belong and feel valued. Yeah, and feel partisan. I think that value piece is huge. You know, like the we've we've started communicating so poorly recently over the years. You know, as much as technology is a great thing, I think it's affected our ability to connect to something prop. You know, tangible and real to communicate in a real, authentic, and relevant way. And uh, I've tried to bring that back into the school and the work that we do each and every day. Um, But yeah,
1: no, I I think just just that I wanted you to speak about that and speak about that, that sense of belonging that you that you you strive to create. Um, And like you said, everybody's all in. Right. And I think, you know, it's evident in what you see in the work that you've done, that that sense of community. Um, How did you deal with resistors?
0: so so a couple of things right like when it comes to dealing with resistors i really try not to pay any attention to them or give them the platform they think they deserve you know like i try and blow right past negativity with positivity you know like i think that when you go into an organization or working in an organization of any description there's a third that are all on board fired up ready to go there's a third that are compliant waiting to be either way or to be nourished more. Um, and then there's that group that it doesn't matter what you say to them, right? Like mm. you have to figure out a way to figure that out. But so I concentrate on the two thirds. Yeah. And eventually what happens is when you focus on the two thirds and you create that excitement, and that energy, the other, the other group, they start saying, well, shoot, I want to be involved in that. And they change their way or shoot, you know, maybe this ain't the place for me anymore. But I think I've never been afraid to say, Hey, we're all adults. If this isn't what you're about, that's okay. Like we don't have to, we don't have to get upset because we disagree. It's okay to disagree, but as the leader, this is the vision. This is the mission and you can choose to be involved in that or not, you know? And as adults, I think sometimes we're, we're a little bit, we sidestep that conversation a little bit and I'm just really open about it. Like if you're not into what I'm about, that's okay. That's cool. You know, there's plenty of opportunities out there. Choose one and, and be happy. Like if I'm not making you happy or this isn't making you happy, find the thing that makes you happy, right? Like it's kind of like balance. A lot of people talk about balance and finding balance and doing too much of this and that. Now, I think that's a load of crap. You yeah. know, like balance is about doing more of the things that you love. That's and you nice. know what I choose to do? I choose to do everything related to school like that is my balance I can't get enough of it I can't get enough of helping teachers or helping kids and I always say to a new teacher that joins me I'm like hey if you fail it's not because you failed it's because I failed you Mm -hmm. my job is to make you and give you the opportunity to be the greatest teacher that you can be and give you a platform to be authentic relevant and real with your kids your community and the work that you do each and every day
1: And that sense, and that's one of the questions that I wanted to ask you, was about that sense of teacher autonomy. And I told you before we hit the record button, my role is a pedagogical coordinator, and it involves the cognitive coaching framework, which is about unlocking internal resources within teachers uh, to help them be their best for their students. And um, I think that's that question I wanted to ask you is, you know, I, I can see that you're all about uh, creating self-authoring learning journeys for teachers how do you find that balance with holding them accountable as well
0: yeah you know what i think i think accountabilities are often are often talked and over focused on look when you treat people as professionals you grow them. You nurture them. You give them a clear focus, a clear vision. They're going to respond to that. Mm-hmm. When you beat down your teachers, when when you try to tie them down too much, when you try to put them in a square box, you know, they're going to fight back in a negative way against mm-hmm. that or they're not going to respond. You know, like our job is to motivate. It's, our job is to inspire, not require. You mm-hmm. know, don't alienate. Um, and I think a lot of the time when we get so focused on accountability, it has the reverse effect on our teachers where they become compliant and I don't want my teachers teaching out of compliant. I want them teaching on fire. And when we get into this trap of teaching to a test, which is a huge problem we have right now, we get very much compliant, um, teaching, uh, compliant curriculum and we lose that authentic, relevant experience for our kids and the teacher. Look, it's feedback, you know, like if your school's bored if your kids are bored if the children aren't responding in the class that's feedback that's feedback on our preparation our organization our instruction and we need to respond to that but i've found by by unshackling teachers by giving them the green light and letting them teach they respond accordingly because they feel respected they feel uplifted as a professional and they respond accordingly and but at the same time I have a really clear focus on that and The other thing is, instead of focusing on testing, focus on great instruction each and every day. You're going to smoke the exams. And I've proven that. I've shown it. When you give your teachers the green light to lead, to teach, and to be on fire and provide authentic, relevant learning experiences every day, there's nothing that an exam can compete with when it comes to that. Because you're creating a situation where kids are critical thinking, kids are engaged in their learning process. And so everything starts clicking together. We make this mistake of trying to put everything about education into silos. Yeah. Education is not a silo. We need to everything's integrated. If a teacher's having a bad day, that affects kids. If kids are fat, having a bad day, it affects teachers. If I'm not leading from the front, that affects teachers. You know, yeah. like there's all this integration that we don't talk enough about, but we try to box it into silos. Like, hey, this is the instruction. This is the exams. These are the sh-. You know, it doesn't work like that. And so, we, you know, the world doesn't work like that. Like, everybody gets so focused on coding and all this sort of stuff. You know what? Businesses, here's what they're going to tell you. We're going to teach them how to code. But what we need them, our students to be able to do is critical critical think, to be able to problem solve, to think across cultures and collaborate and communicate. One of the number one skills today that our kids need, that our teachers should be using in our classes all the time, is that ability to communicate and That's collaborate. Right. And uh, sometimes we, we run across too many too many places where we run across silent classrooms. You know, the world is in a silent place. We need the voice. Look, our students and our teachers, uh, we're focused on creating opportunities for our kids to be the next generation of problem solvers. So why would we box a teacher in to not being able to help create that environment for our kids?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I recently had Alfie Cohen. Do you know Alfie Cohen? Yeah, I recently had him on my podcast and uh, he um, he said the exact same things, exact same things like he Time magazine has uh, described him as being America's biggest critic of testing. And he is so passionate about, you know, not testing, you know, you know, he knows you can't get around it. But that idea of doing exactly what you're saying, creating autonomy in the classroom for teachers and students. To, to learn and to, to be at their best. And um, so it really strikes a, a chord with me, everything you're saying, especially in the work that I'm doing in the PYP, which is all about inquiry-based teaching. And if we were to slide over, I'd like to take this opportunity for you to uh, talk about your book, Relentless, that just came out in the past month or two.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: And what I really want to know is like, Obviously, every, every human idea begins with just the seed of thought, right? But can you just take us through the process of creating that book? And when you first came up with that idea or that seed that, and what you had to do to kind of nourish the seed in order for it to flourish into what it's become. And it's a big hit right now. A lot of teachers are reading it.
0: Yeah, it's it's really overwhelming. Uh, it's really humbling. Uh, so much gratitude to how big it's become. Who would have thought a kid like me would end up writing a book that would be a bestseller?
1: Yeah. You know,
0: um, I still can't quite comprehend its impact. Um, you know, it's been a really humbling journey—the whole relentless journey—where um, people admire your work and they start sharing it more and. You know, trying to comprehend that is tough at times. You know, mm-hmm. um, I experience a lot of anxiety around that. You know, like mm-hmm. um, trying to enjoy the moment is really tough for me with yeah. that kind of thing. Um, and I think that relates to how I grew up too. You feel like everything's going to disappear on you, yeah. and including this, you know. Um, and you don't want to let anybody down. Um, quite frankly, uh, when relentless, when I first thought about relentless, like. I really want I don't think I was really interested in writing a book. Writing for me is hard a hard task anyway. And um I think there's so many books out there today, so much out there today so similar like I didn't want to do something like everybody else has done. I didn't want to do ten chapters on whatever the topic was. Mm-hmm. You know, it just that wasn't me. I want if I was going to write a book it was going to be me. Um and I put it off and put it off and I people kept asking and people kept asking and inquiring and and eventually I was like, you know what, maybe this is something I'm, I'm going to do, you know, look, I think one of the things I pride myself on is I'm still a principal. I'm still in the trenches. I'm still doing the work, you know, I don't ever want to escape that. Um, and you see a lot of times where uh, opportunities through books and that can do that. And I, I didn't want to gravitate that way. Mm -hmm. Um, but the more messages I got from around the world of people thanking me for hope and inspiration, I was like, here is a gift that I have to be able to be humbled enough to continue to grow and share because it's impacting others. And while I have this um, platform and people still want to hear me, then I have a responsibility to do something about that. If if the work I'm doing and the messages I'm sharing is impacting <laughs> children all around the world, then I have a responsibility not to turn my back on that. And so that's kind of where it went. And Dave Burgess reached out to me and and we we had a quick conversation and, and basically it was like, hey, let's write relentless. And I'm like, the timing was right, you know, like mm-hmm. he hit me at the right time. Um, I did put my doctorate on hold a little bit to write the book, but like I say, it is a hard task for me. And quite often the, my my process for writing is up in my up in my head. Like I pretty much wrote the book in my head and then put it on paper. You know, mm-hmm. like I was like I figured
1: So you thought it else it. in
0: education has really done a memoir like that, yeah. either? And I felt like I had a story to tell from the time I broke my back in a fire truck accident, learning to get my body going again, running and walking again properly to how I taught, to how I led, to how we do school improvement. There's this journey across the board. And so it really became a passion project. I don't think the book's ever finished. Like I can think of 10 more things today Mm -hmm. I should have put in there or – And, and, and it was, um, basically the whole process was a six month journey. And in the last six weeks, I dropped it all on paper and just wrote and put my heart, put my heart and soul into it and really opened up even more. Um, and, and I really wanted it to be authentic. I wanted it to be real. I wanted it to be gritty. I wanted it. I wanted people to laugh, cry, cry. Um, feel like they were on a journey with me and then be able to look at their own own life professionally mm-hmm. and personally um, to grow professionally and personally themselves. And um, I hope that that's the essence of what relentless catch it. Um, the feedback is just being mind boggling um, around it. Uh, people have felt drawn to it. People have, people have really questioned their own self professionally and personally. And, and you see people going on their own journeys. And so mm-hmm. again, um, just, I, I mean, I'm really humbled and blown away, I man. I didn't think a kid like me would write a book like that, you know.
1: Yeah, and I think storytelling is the most powerful provocation there is to tap into people's inner souls, you know. And it sounds like that's what you're doing through in this. This is based on it's storytelling. It's a storytelling about your life and your journey and and your learning and your passion and your dedication. And what I found when I did my TED talk and I I got up on the stage and I was shitting my pants. I was like, there, a, a week before I, I was going to give the talk, I was like, there's no way I can get up and give this talk. I can't possibly do it. I'm talking about my screwed up family. I'm talking about death. I'm talking about addiction and mental illness. And I, I just thought, and I had a backup plan. I, I had this other talk. I said, I'm going to do that. And then I told the TED couple people on the TED committee that I was thinking about changing it. And of course, in my heart, I knew that I couldn't. Mm. And I had to honor my brothers. Uh, they were incredibly talented, and they just fell, fell victim to uh, mental illness and addiction. And, you know, I was on the cusp of those things, you know, I I could have easily gone down that road. Um, but I think in, in telling in sharing our uh, authentic selves, you obviously give permission to others to do the same, yeah. And that's the key: is giving yeah. permission to others to be their their uh, authentic self and to be vulnerable and to share. And the more, it just creates a cyclical effect. So yeah. it sounds like that is is what's happening.
0: Yeah, look, I couldn't agree more. Today there's unfortunately it's scary. It doesn't matter if you're black, white, green, yellow, high poverty. Uh, high socioeconomic, you know, our kids are coming to school facing more and more trauma than ever before. It's Mm. really scary, the world that our kids are battling and fighting through right now. And, you know, I lost a student to youth suicide, probably one of the hardest things I ever went through as as an administrator and led a community through. And it wasn't going to the child's funeral that got me. It was clearing out the child's locker that really haunts me today. And I'd give it all up give it all up today to have one more conversation with that child. And, you know, that's another example of why I advocate so hard for kids and teachers and education, because um, we have to do it different. We can't keep ignoring it. You know, we can't keep ignoring the trauma. We can't keep shelving these conversations. Like I'm scared for the high socioeconomic students where they live in environments. We have the silent conversation. You know, where they're too scared to talk about it or they don't talk about it or they're told not to talk about it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, at least my kids, I'll tell you everything. My kids just spit it out. A lot of these other kids hold it in until it's too late and they don't have someone for them. And, you know, taking it back to the TED the talk, like when I went on stage and even the relentless videos that I did with FreeThink, When I start talking about my family and putting out my our trials and tribulations like that, it's like. It cuts at the soul because it's, it's real, right? That. And I worry about the impact it has on them or the impact it has on my friends and the people around me. But at the end of the day, they've you know, they've helped me understand it's my story. It's my story to share and my story to own. And if it's impacting and helping others, continue. But I shit my pants when I got on that TED stage. <laughs> and I, I wasn't sure if it was me cycling myself up because over the years, you know, you watch people on this red dot, right? Yeah. And then you walk out on stage and holy crap, here's me on the red dot, yeah. you know? Um, and I, I'll never forget that journey. It took me, they had me close our show out. Yeah, it was, I had five well. hours to sit around and yeah. wait for people to come back yeah. and say, that was the hardest thing I'd ever done. Yeah. That was the hardest thing I'd ever done. And I'm yeah. like, okay, I've got four more hours to listen to that, you know? (laughs) And before you know it, you start psyching yourself out. And uh, because, you know, in life you have these opportunities to leave a legacy, right? The opportunities to leave a difference, to make a difference on the world. And I think uh, I I just want to leave a mark. I want to say I left the place better than I found it. You know, legacy is huge to me. I talk about legacy in all my speeches and Legacy, legacy. legacy—it's that opportunity to impact and make the world better. And what are we doing about that? You know, like, what are you doing with your life? You know, there's no guarantees. Like, what are you doing? Like, yesterday's done. Today's the only guarantee, and tomorrow we don't know about yet. What are you doing today to live with passion and purpose? Be persistent in your pursuit of the things that you want to live for. You know, and and I think uh, I don't make it about the instruction. I make it about that. Yeah. You know, and the instruction and all those things fall into it from there. You know, like I'm an instructional expert. I will smoke anybody when it comes to curriculum. But the thing I'm most important, about, I'm most proud about is that, is that piece about legacy and making the world better and leaving a difference and leaving a mark. Like when everybody else is running out of the fire, I ran in. Yeah. You know, I just sat in my elementary school and loved it and, and, and ate it up because we, we got that turned around and it was running amazing. You know, we won awards. Yet in my community, I saw another school struggling when everybody else said it couldn't be done. I've always been a battler, man. Like this whole, you tell me it can't be done, I'm going to show you it can be done. <laughs> and so when everybody else ran out of there, I ran in and said, let's go. Let's put a stake in the sand and say, you know what? Zip code, color, religion, whatever it is that you attract, it will not be a dictator of our outcome. Your zip code won't define your outcome.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's that's great. and. I watched the one uh, video where you gave your first talk. Um, what's your current school, the name of it again?
0: Uh, Fridlin Middle School.
1: Right. And I saw that talk you gave to the parents. And a ton, you must have had a couple hundred parents there easily. And you got up on the table and you, you I, I'm not going to say you pleaded to them because you didn't plead. You spoke passionately that you couldn't do your job without them and their support. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and they yeah. really responded.
0: Because I've never met a parent that doesn't believe in someone that believes in their kids. Yeah. They will support you. To, but you've got to put a stake in the ground. You know, Everything that everybody said about us, talked about us, written about us, a lot of it was true. So we ain't running from it anymore. But what we are going to do is we're going to dictate the outcome of what happens next. Mm-hmm. And we're going to tell our story. And we're going, to, we're going to be the example and the model for what happens next. And so instead of somebody else um, telling it, we took control. And with the parents, I, say, I, put them on, I put them on notice like this is a we thing. It's an everybody thing. And we make family the center of everything we do. Look, I know you have a bit of a PE background, for instance. Mm-hmm. Look, when we have sports events at our schools, it's huge gates, right? Everybody's charging for admissions. I didn't do that. I made everything free. Yeah. I made it all free. And, let, and all of a sudden, our parents started showing, our comm- when you invest in your parents as much as your teachers and your students, they respond accordingly. Look, we have a communication problem today in education. I don't think we communicate well with parents. I think parents are scared to talk to teachers, and teachers are scared to talk to parents. So I've gone the opposite way. I've hit it head on up front right from the get-go, and made made it made school open and viable and vibrant for parents again, and for students. But you know, it's not telling parents we, – we make this mistake of telling parents what to do or asking them to be in charge of stuff. Let's just get our community and our stakeholders participating together and participate as a family where everybody brings bread to the table because when you sit around the table and you break bread together, you become a powerful force. And, and that's what we really focused on was this act of community and family. We have essentials in our school, and the number one essential, which is kind of like a rule – but we don't do rules, we do expectation, is we are family. That's it. Mm-hmm. Everything stops and finishes with we are family, teachers, students, and, and parents, you know, and the parents feel that. They feel connected to that. And, and, you know, you think about the whole international connection, like the one thing that stood the test of time all around the world is love, mm-hmm. community, and family. Mm-hmm. And so that's what, that's what we focus on at school is making it about those three things, and that's the common language for anybody.
1: Do you think a uh, part of you and and i'm I'm just gonna move over here because I'm getting a book that I want to show you but do you do you think a, a part of you and thinking about the way you grew up with lack i i you know I don't know the intimate details of your family background, but it sounds like there was that that lack of connection that that lack of belonging uh not knowing how you fit in, maybe a lack of love, whatever it was but I, I have been working really hard to kind of dig into my past and in order to better understand some of the dysfunction and how it has potentially um, resulted in me having uh, blinders onto certain things about myself, right? And I've been studying the work of Dr. Gabor Mate. Have you, have you heard about him? Um, and he's done, uh, you know, 12, 13 years of He worked in the trenches of um, really poor areas of Vancouver working day in and day out with addiction, um, people with addictions and mental illness. And he says everything begins with childhood trauma and that we have to invest the time to, like you said, you talked about trauma, but also to understand if you came from a dysfunctional background, to understand the trauma that you experienced and the voids or gaps that were created as a result of the trauma and how we fill those gaps over time in different ways right um so how do you feel about like do you think your endless desire to create community and belonging um is deeply connected to what was lacking in your childhood
0: sure i think I think that in society, like we've gone through this sweeping change. Like, when you think about how the images, the stereotypes, what's projected to us, you know, everything's projected as whole and perfect. All the visuals, you know, like the visuals of family being connected, the visuals of, you know, a dream job, the white picket fence. I mean, it's just not as real today like that. It doesn't look like that anymore. And I think. I think I was part of that generation of kids that went through this massive, sweeping change where society really started to tick over, and you have these visions of what perfect and whole is, and you try to understand what that is when it doesn't become that. You know, when we move on, like when my parents separated, you know, it was tough trying to understand why we weren't whole. You mm-hmm. know, why we we're not perfect, and trying to understand this concept of what perfect is and what you're chasing. and And I think I think when you Growing up, it's not necessarily what you didn't have, it's understanding the why behind it and the connections to the past, present and future and what that looks and feels like because everything you were led to believe might not necessarily truly end up being that, right? It's not, the reality is different from what you're led to believe and so you work through those things and, you know, like it's funny, my family is more whole today than it's ever been. Oh, cool. Yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like it's a full circle. Like, yeah. while my parents might be still separated today, there's we found love again.
1: Yeah. Okay. We figured
0: it out again on the back end, you know? And mm-hmm. I wrote that in my dedication in the book was we've finally found peace, you know, we've finally yeah, yeah. found happiness we we're at peace with what happened. Mm-hmm. I think so often you you know, you can't escape the way you grow up. You can you can't escape it. You know, whether you deal with it then or you deal with it as you get older, everybody's mm-hmm. different. But that trauma, those experiences, all those things that you go through, make you who you are today. Mm-hmm. You know, you just can't escape it. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of people that try and fake it, or they'll try and create a they'll try and create a new sense of what their identity is. But eventually, they're going to have to deal with it. Mm-hmm. They're going to have to eventually put those things together. I've tried, I've tried to deal with it through a life of service, you yeah. know, life. And the older I got, the better I've become at that. And actually writing relentless really gave me a lot of peace.
1: Yeah. So it was therapy in itself. Yeah. Yeah. Um, when you think about the question I want to ask you, because you, the demands on your time now are greater than ever. And when you think about the work you're doing and the demands on you and your speaking engagements and your job and your endless dedication to your profession, how are you ensuring that you find the balance? Not, I don't want to say balance is the wrong word. How are you ensuring that ultimately you're looking after yourself to ensure that uh, you're emotionally, emotionally well?
0: So I guess that's a huge weakness for me. Like I'm a hard charger And I'm so relentless in my pursuit of giving to others that I often put my own health, my own well-being to the side because that's what I do. Like I'm all in on these things and trying to find the balance and being present in every one of those things. That's the biggest challenge now is being present in all those places and making sure that, you know, not one overtakes the other, but. You know, I don't ever want to – the most the priority for me, and I was thinking about this last night, I watched a movie about this guy Gleason and he had ALS and just thinking about trying to draw myself back to making sure that there's always – in life I find for me there's always these things, these these uh, signs, these, these stop signs that remind me to continue to humble myself and continue to make children the focus because when I get off that, that's when I can get astray. And so I always try to make sure that that's still the center of everything I do. Um, it's weird, you know, like as the speaking has growing, and it's amazing I'm trying to understand that concept of why am I doing it? And the why is I've come to believe is the why is I'm impacting a bigger audience that get to impact more kids. Mm-hmm. And yeah, yeah. ultimately, if I'm impacting those adults, those people, those kids, whoever it is in my audience at the time, if it's making the day better for kids tomorrow – then I continue to do it. The day I don't believe I'm making a difference for kids is the day it has to stop. Or if people don't want to hear the message any longer, then it's time to stop.
1: So that's something that you're you're searching, not searching for, but that you yearn for is that that making the difference. And that, that gives you the greatest professional satisfaction, personal and yeah. professional satisfaction.
0: Yeah. There's no greater gift than the opportunity to impact a child's outcome. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not going to negotiate on my kids. I don't, I I just, my kids are not a negotiation. My kids are an opportunity. They're not an obligation. I don't look at kids as obligation. I look at them as opportunity each and every day. And the one thing I have zero tolerance for, and I will not negotiate on the outcomes of my kids, I believe in every single one of them 100%. You know, their journeys are all different. It's like a mixtape. Remember the days we used to listen to (laughs) mixtapes? All our kids are a mixtape, man. They all come with different different tattoos, different, different songs, different messages, but every single one of them needs to be loved and advocated for like there's no tomorrow. And that, and that's where the buck starts, starts, stops and finishes for me.
1: Yeah. And one of the things I heard recently was this idea of people think that they're in such control of their lives and that they know what's going on and they know what's best but there are a million pieces to the puzzle of life and and work. And although you might be holding on to, not you personally, but somebody might be holding on to three or four of those pieces that they feel are absolutely best. There are millions of other pieces. And it's this idea of, you know, every single day is a different day. And there's all of these pieces that are trying to fit in. So we can't hold on to those pieces so tight to say, this is how it's done. It's always an evolving process of of learning. And that's that's the life of a great teacher, I think.
0: Yeah. You know that I I hope I got this through in the book, too, is it's the process and it's the journey. You know, you might not accomplish, you know, you get all these people that want to climb Everest, um, but not everybody gets to the top of Everest. It's not about the actual being on top of Everest it's the journey. Yeah. It's the process. It's the learning that takes place through the journey of life, the journey, the, the whole experience. Look, it's it's amazing how we might live to 70, 90 years, but really that's just a speckle in time. And I've really come to, the older I get, and I think the older we get, we come to realize this more, is that time is truly short. And what we do with that time and and what we make of that time is the most important thing that happens. And yet you, I try to take it. I've lived a life where if an opportunity knocks, I'm not afraid to accept it and have a crack at it. I'm definitely a risk taker, um, you know, I've backpacked around the world and seen some amazing things on my journeys. Um, I was in Southeast Asia, spent a lot of time in Thailand and rock climbed. And you come across people. I think you come across people in life for a reason and, mm. and everything, every, every, it's all interconnected and, and it's what you, it's how well you listen. Yeah. You know, what are you listening to the signals in life? What are you listening to with your audience, with your people, your students, your kids, your teachers? You know, I became a great educator when I listened, when I took in what was happening around me and responded to it. It's all feedback. And it's how we respond to it positively and negatively. And um, I just continued to want to live a life of passion and purpose. And I wrote about that in the book at the end there. And I put this bucket list in there because It's funny how as adults, we get away from what those passion and that purpose and that and life's journey is, you know, Mm -hmm. like, I mean, we should be trying to tick off things in the bucket list to live a passionate and purposeful life. And so I tried to help create that environment for people to get back to thinking about. But, but, you know, it's a short period of time. It's what we do in that time that counts.
1: Absolutely. And as we draw to a close, I just have a couple more questions for you. But um, that idea of, you know, obviously I, I had, I was going to ask you the question, what is your biggest hope? Like if you were to project forward in 10 years time, but I think you've explained that your, your biggest hope will continue to be to make a difference. Right. But if there is, there's something that you could, you could wish for, or what is it that you're hoping for? Let's say in 10 years time.
0: Yeah. You know, I think that's a, that's a really tough question, you know? Um, Uh, my world over the last few years has really transformed remarkably and changed and trying to understand what that means and what that journey is and where it's going is still difficult to comprehend and figure Mm -hmm. out. Um, I hope one day I can figure that out a bit better. Um, But, you know, my, the greatest thing that happens is when I see a kid get hope, Mm -hmm. I see a kid be able to change or kid strive and come out, break us, break a cycle. I, I want to make sure that I continue to ha- make that difference for people that I can continue to impact people and inspire and motivate people to be the difference for themselves. And most importantly for kids um, and wherever that journey may take me, you know, I'm I'm open to it. I'm really open-minded to those things. Um, and I just hope that I don't waste, waste the opportunities I have to impact those people, you know, or don't, one of the things that I'm most proud about when I wrote that book, relentless, is I'm still the same person I am today that I was 20 years ago. I had people write little pockets in there, mm-hmm. and it's really interesting to see along the way what how you grew and who you were at the beginning and who you are today. I think I'm most proud of. I'm still the same person. I'm still the same, I'm still chasing greatness for kids. I'm still trying to break the barriers. Look. You want to talk about some real talk? I hope we start paying more attention to what's happening in education, that our policymakers pay more attention, that they stop taking money off educators, that we start paying our teachers the way that, you know, like I have this whole other side. You know, I, I worry about the oceans. You know, I worry about climate change. I worry about all these things happening in the world. And I just hope that I can with my little with my little piece of it, that I can continue to be the hope and continue to make a difference.
1: Yeah, that's beautiful. And I really hope that more and more people get um, turned on to your work. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on the podcast. And uh, where can people find Relentless?
0: Uh, You can find it on Amazon. Uh, You can buy it on Amazon. Uh, Getting ready to be audio as well. I'm going to record that in my voice. Excellent. uh, Which is pretty exciting. But uh, you can find it on Amazon, uh, Barnes & Noble. Um and and that's pretty much where you can find it. Just uh humbled that people would want to read it.
1: Yeah, and where can people find you on social media?
0: Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at BrewerHN. HM. Um pretty prolific on my social media and Instagram at Relentless Principle and Facebook at Hamish Brewer. Um I deliver a lot of content on those uh three platforms and uh just hope that uh you're inspired enough to want to follow me. I like to try and follow as many people back um as I can. Uh, because if someone's um, uh, able to follow me, I think that I should show the same gratitude back.
1: Yeah, great. And um, yeah, it's it's been great to have this discussion with you. And, and perhaps, you know, maybe six, eight months from now, we could do a part two. Uh, to, love- to, yeah, to just to talk a little further. And um, so yeah, thank you very much for your time today.
0: I really do appreciate it.
1: Yeah. So just stay on the line. I'm just going to close off the show and then we'll just uh, chat for a minute or two. Everybody, thank you very much for listening to this uh, episode. And I hope you come back to listen to future episodes. Okay, I'm just stopping.
0: Thanks for listening to the Run Your
1: Life podcast by Andy Bassman. To check out show notes, get some more information about Andy as well as his guests, Head to our website, 21clradio.com.